Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Yale and New Haven share nearly 300 years of history and one keeper-in-chief of the highlights. She's with us today. Judy Schiff is Chief Research Archivist at Yale and as of last year, New Haven's City Historian. Judy grew up in New Haven and has worked at Yale for more than 50 years with intermittent absences for college and graduate school at Barnard and Columbia. Judy's been called Yale's Encyclopedia and has written the old Yale column in the Yale Alumni Magazine since 1987. Today we'll talk about a colonial American college that became a global university, Handsome Dan, 19th century collegiate baseball, the dawn of Frisbee, and we'll take some of your questions. Tweet us at, at Yale or email us at socialmedia at yale.edu. Judy, thanks for being with us. It's great to be here. So Yale uh, and New Haven have been together for almost 300 years. The university is a little bit older than that. It didn't start in the city of New Haven. Tell us how it got here and why. Well, the dream of the college, the so-called even pre-founding, as some people have described it, did take place in New Haven with the plan in the mind of the principal founder, the uh, Reverend John Davenport. Uh, the group of Puritans who came first to Boston and hoped to settle there and hoped to found a college found that there had already been a college founded there in 1636 and that became Harvard. And so they looked for a new place and they found a wonderful place where the Quinnipiac Indians lived that had a great harbor. And uh, it took them a while to get the college started, but that was their dream. And what about the shoreline? We often hear about Yale really originating in some of the shoreline towns, Brantford, Old Saybrook, and so on. Did classes first? That's right. Tell, tell us about well, that. Well, it, it was really the minister of New Haven, James Pierpont, okay. who continued this unfulfilled dream of the Reverend Davenport. Davenport's dream didn't happen because the colony of New Haven was dissolved by King Charles II. It was added to the uh, colony of Connecticut. And so uh, it wasn't until 1701 when the area ministers, 10 of them met in Minister Russell's home in Branford, and by a symbolic act of each of them putting their most valuable possessions, their books on a table and creating a library, they said they founded a college. But this was not a legal college, so it had to have a charter, which they got in New Haven at the meeting of the legislature in 1701. But where was the college going to go? And that was sort of a competition between Hartford and New Haven. And so they had a compromise location, which was Saybrook, now Old Saybrook, mm -hmm. which was at the juncture of the Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River. So it seemed like a good place to start. And classes were held there until, for, for some time. Yes, uh, the college sort of began to fall apart as early as about 1713. It never really got a firm footing. The first rector died in 1707. Saybrook was such a small town, people didn't really want to go there particularly. And so it began to actually break apart into small groups being taught in tutors' homes. Mm -hmm. And so in 1716, they put out a call for a new home and Yale outbid every place else. New Haven did? New Haven okay. outbid Hartford. And so it was decided by the corporation to move to New Haven, which they did in 1716. However, it took a while for a building to be built. And 
1716 is when Yale essentially establishes itself in it the makes city, the in official the city of New Haven. vote to move to New Haven. Okay, and uh, you you say that um, the city outbid uh, Hartford. That's right for the college. What do you mean by that outbid? What, what, there was it sounds like there was a contest. Well, they actually met the uh, selectmen in each of these communities, and the two largest really being uh, New Haven and Hartford. Mm -hmm. The, uh, they pledged up to about 2,000 pounds, or the, the, at least that's what they said, mm -hmm. and a lot of land. And the land was at the corner of College and Chapel Street, now occupied by uh, Bingham Hall, mm -hmm. across the street from Claire's. Mm -hmm. And that was where the first building was built. But they began to run out of money even before the building was built. So, so that building is long gone. Yes. But although that's the corner of old campus, yes. of, of old campus mm -hmm. today. Um, so, um, uh, presumably, it was a, a, then a subsidy from uh, the the polis of New Haven that kept the university that, that attracted it here and kept yes. it going initially. I mean, all colleges are dependent upon support, whether it be private or public. Of course. And for many years, Yale enjoyed both. Mm -hmm. And. Um, might be a good time to talk about Elihu Yale come, stepping it, into it, the picture. It would be, although I want to quickly ask you if there are any visible signs of colonial era uh, Yale, physical signs, uh, today. Well, definitely, because the second building that Yale built, which we call Connecticut Hall, is still standing. It's the oldest building in New Haven. It's in the center of the old campus. You can't see it from the street. This is a red brick building. The yes. red brick building with the statue of Nathan Hale outside. Nathan Hale roomed in that building, as did Eli Whitney and James Hillhouse, and anyone famous who went to Yale in the early days lived in that building. Back to uh, your topic, uh, a certain gentleman named Elihu Yale. Uh, who was he, and uh, how did his uh, family name come to be the name of what today is Yale University? Well, uh, Yale, to begin with, as a school, had no name. It was just called the Collegiate School. Uh, apparently maybe waiting for a donor, or at least keeping it kind of quiet so that it wouldn't arouse too much suspicion back in the mother country. And so when they were... That being Great Britain. Great Britain. And so when they were building the building, as I said, they didn't even have enough money to build, complete this first building. And one of the men who took an interest in the school, Cotton Mather, knew that Elihu Yale was a man of great property and wealth living in London who had New Haven connections. In fact, his father, David Yale, was a stepson of Theophilus Eaton, who was the principal founder along with Davenport. Principal founder of? Of the colony of New Haven. Okay. And so um, David Yale had spent some time in New Haven, the father of Elihu, uh, grew to maturity, apparently went to Boston to seek a wife and began to raise a family there. In the meantime, uh, Elihu being born in 1649, that was when Oliver Cromwell came into power. In, and it was in England. In England. So it was possible for these renegade Puritans who became Congregationalists to go back to England if they wished to because they could practice their religion. And many, many did. And so the family of David Yale went back to England. And Elihu Yale. So did Elihu Yale grow up in England? Set foot in the city of New Haven. Never came to New Haven, but he did know about his New Haven roots, and in fact, that was really the, one of the uh, the reasons that they knew that they possibly could get some money from him because Elihu Yale had only daughters; they were married, could not carry on the name. 
his, uh, he had had a son who died as a young boy. He brought over a cousin also named David Yale from New Haven that he was planning to sponsor and adopt eventually. But uh, David Yale did not like, the young David Yale did not like the lifestyle in Britain and went back to New Haven. He gave up the chance to become a very wealthy man in order to live as a farmer here. And what was what was Elihu Yale doing for a living that enabled him to be a benefactor? He was put out as a very young boy, about 15 or 16, as a clerk in the East India Company. And that was just the beginning of East India Company. He amassed great wealth, possibly mainly because he was he stayed healthy. Everybody above him passed away from various uh, tropical diseases. And he became the governor of Fort St. George. At the same time... Which is where? That is, that's in the southern part of India. Okay. At the same time, he amassed a great private fortune by learning the diamond trade from Portuguese traders. And he brought the diamond industry actually back to England where they had never really known about cutting jewels. Some of the jewels were cut in the earlier days in Holland. So he had a great fortune, which would have come to Yale. He actually only gave a small token gift to begin with, but it sold for some 500 pounds of valuables. And that was a great start for Yale at the time. So they quickly reprinted their commencement program in this is in what year? In 1718. 1718. September was when people used to graduate from okay. college. So the commencement program was quickly reprinted as Yale College. They had the money to finish their building, which they also named this Yale College. This is the building formerly at the corner of Chapel and That's college. right. It was a wooden building, a rather Im impressive building. We have, do have prints of it. And, but it, it was not of material that was long-lasting, and it, it sort of deteriorated and was torn down about 1780. But the name Yale stuck, and when Yale got its first official full charter in 1745, the Yale name was officially put on it. It was known as Yale before that, though. Um, so the... Uh You've been the chief research archivist uh, of the university for some time. You've been with the university for more than five decades. <laughs> I have. Um, are there? Uh, well, let me let me let, let me ask pass along a question from uh, from a viewer, uh, Chianti Roman, who wants to um, know a little bit about uh, what your favorite relics in the manuscripts and archives are. And I guess I would add to that: Are there any that that relate to colonial era Yale? Yes, uh, there are many artifacts. Uh, you might d compare manuscripts and archives, and we are in Sterling mm -hmm. Memorial Library, not part of the Beinecke, which mm -hmm. is a distinct uh, collection at Yale, but we are more or less the university archives, which is about accounts for maybe half of our holdings. That is every record financial minutes of the corporation going back to mm -hmm. 1701, and the repository for American historical, political, papers, and this ranges from papers such as the Eli Whitney papers to the papers of A.C. Gilbert, usually people that do have a Yale connection. But we have a few others like the Walter Lippmann papers, mm -hmm. and probably most famous are our papers of Charles and Ann Morrow Lindbergh. Now, Charles Lindbergh mm -hmm. was not uh, a Yale graduate, if I'm not mistaken. No. So how, uh, how did those Well, it seemed that wherever he turned in his... Uh, public life that he was connected with a Yale man. So Got I think it. he had, especially Juan Tripp, the founder of Pan Am. Mm -hmm. He worked with Pan Am to found Pan American Airlines. And uh, 
later became um, to know Kingman Brewster mm -hmm. in the later years. So th there was always a Yale man who somehow figured. In fact, he always said that the reason he made it to Paris was that this wonderful engine, the first powerful engine that could sustain a flight of that long, was invented by a Yale man, Charles Lawrence, who mm -hmm. got an honorary degree for that. And uh, you referenced uh, earlier um, in your uh, response that uh, you have documents that go back to the very first year, is that correct? That's right. I guess the most famous Yale document would be the first, the minutes of the first meeting of the corporation. That was in November of, seventh, of 1701 okay. in Saybrook when they say we are founding this college in order to train uh, young men for both the ministry and the state. This was very important because it meant that Yale was not going to be a divinity school or a religious college. I mean, they realized from the very beginning that you needed doctors, lawyers, all professions, but you needed a basis of a liberal arts education, and that's what Yale still has at its, as its core, the BA, the Bachelor mm -hmm. of Arts degree, and that from that you build on the professional training or further academic training that you need. I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the, the religious affiliation, though, um, because we, we also have a question uh, from Facebook from a Gloria Hoda who wants to know if there was ever a relationship between Yale and the churches on the green. Yes, definitely with Center Church. Center Church was the initial church founded by Davenport. It remained in the most purely old-style congregational. You had the offshoot, more Reformed Church, which mm -hmm. is um, the United Church next door, and of course, eventually, you have a Church of England church, the Episcopal Church. But for many, many years, all of the commencements were held in Center Church. Mm -hmm. And even today, in the commencement procession, and you'll see that on May 20th, the procession will walk from the old campus, well, it actually ends up at the old campus, but it will start in front of the library, go down around the green and, and make a circle around Center Church and go back to the old campus where the ceremonies are held. So there definitely was always a tie with the Congregational Church for really over 200 years. Mm -hmm. Daily Chapel was not abolished at Yale until 1926. Mm. And that was only because even with two sessions in the morning, they couldn't fit everybody in, so it had to become optional. But there is, there is no re religious tied to the Congregational Church now. So I want to talk about Handsome Dan. I want to talk about 19th century, uh, the, the, the origin of, of collegiate baseball, and I want to talk about the Yale Bowl. There's some good sports stuff to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but first, uh, New Haven, how did it earn the nickname the Elm City? Elm City tradition really goes back to the earliest days. The Reverend Pierpont that I mentioned, his home was on the site where the oldest house in New Haven is now the Yale Visitor Center uh, facing That's the green. That's on Elm Street? That's on 149 Elm Street facing the green. And traditionally there were two elms planted in front of that his house. And that was where Jonathan Edwards courted the daughter of the Pierponts and Sarah Pierpont who became his wife. And so there, was, there came to be a tradition of planting many elms. But it really became very widespread when a man named James Hillhouse, a great entrepreneur and beautifier of New Haven, uh, came forth and from his farm, he had a farm on where Hillhouse Avenue is, and also a country farm, brought elm trees to line in the newly cut through street of Temple Street. And he continued then to plant elms all the way around the green and also in front of 
of the Yale College because we talked about Connecticut Hall. Mm -hmm. That was the foundation of the old brick road. The Yale of the 19th century, at least the earlier part, did not have the buildings in front of it that you see today, those Victorian Gothic mm -hmm. uh, heavy dark structures. They had a lawn that faced on the green that was almost part of the green, you might say. It's been argued that Yale participated in the first intercollegiate baseball game just after the Civil War. There's also a pretty good case to be made uh, for a game played a few years earlier uh, between Amherst and Williams, Williams Colleges in Massachusetts. Is this a question that is likely to be settled definitively? Um, and what do we know about the first Yale game? Well, I have delved into the early history of most Yale sports. In fact, the next uh, article that I've written that's coming out is on wrestling at this Yale. This is in the Yale Alumni Magazine? This is in the Yale okay. Alumni Magazine. Now, baseball has an interesting history because, like some other games, it took a while for people to decide what the rules should be, which forms of the game they liked. And in Massachusetts, Williams and Amherst played the game known as Massachusetts baseball, which was based on a square instead of a diamond, and led to much higher scores. I think that first game was something like 73 to 30 mm -hmm. that, that was won. Well, this was in 1859. The Amherst-Williams game. Okay. That's right. And then uh, the Civil War broke out. And that's when baseball truly became a national sport mm. because you had people in the South and the North, and they said sometimes even North played South in certain mm. periods of lull between battles because they weren't always uh, shooting. Yeah. They weren't always shooting each other. And so the, the other form of baseball, known as New York baseball, came to be the favored game. And that's the game that we know today. And in the fall of 1865, after the war was over, Yale played Wesleyan in what's called the first modern intercollegiate Got game. It. Even so, the scores were pretty high. I think Yale won something like 39 to 13, but it, it was it was a different game played on a diamond mm -hmm. and with with uh, more rules that did not allow quite as many runs. Mm -hmm. And that game was played in New Haven. I believe so. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Let's talk about the Frisbee, the flying disc, uh, which also has a New Haven connection, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Well, Frisbee was the game of the day when I was in college. And I first saw it played, actually, on the Columbia lawns. And so I, it took a while for me to realize how important it was in Yale history. And it all starts with the Frisbee Pie Company. which Of what place? It was principally in Bridgeport, but we found also okay. had had a plant in New Haven as well. And the Frisbee uh, pies were baked in very sturdy tin pie plates that it was found had a, a great aerodynamic quality. And after you finished the pie, you could return the pie pan to the store or the bakery and get five cents. But these became kept more as just missiles. And they would be tossed in a game from student to student. And the idea was that so they were pretty lethal if you were in the way of one of those because they were, they were not your thin aluminum yeah. pie pan of today, that they would shout Frisbee, and it was like saying four in a, go in a golf game. Yeah. Is, this, is this the 20th century or the 19th century? There, it's a deep and mysterious question, okay. and someday we'll find a letter or a diary. The earliest, we've heard people say it goes back to about 1920. The earliest it can be documented is in the late 1930s when uh, an alum said that he had played Frisbee. 
and attested to it. Mm -hmm. But um, it definitely was a game that was associated with the Yale and with the pie plates. The modern Frisbee, and I should point out there is a difference in spelling. The Frisbee pies are B-I-E, with the game being Mm B-E-E. And it was a plastic toy developed in California, a beach toy, that uh, Whammo thought was going to be have a great future, but they couldn't really market it. It was known as the first as the fly-in saucer, and then known as the Pluto platter. And uh, it wasn't until the president came uh, east to do the president business, of the company, the president of Whammo, Richard Nurer, and uh, heard about a game called frisbee that was very similar, except that it was just played locally with mm-hmm. these pie pans. And he thought, well, if they know that Ivy Leaguers are playing this game, that it's just mm. not a kid's beach toy, this might help our sales. And so he renamed the toy Frisbee, changing the spelling slightly. Uh, although conveniently, the Frisbee Pie Company went out of existence in 1957, the same year uh, that the Frisbee uh, became wildly popular. So popular in the spring of 57 that it was written up in the New York Times. Hmm. I want to ask you about a uh, gentleman called Handsome Dan, who, if you would explain who Handsome Dan is uh, and, and how, what his origin as part of the uh, Yale ethos All right, well, it, it started pretty simply with a freshman, Andy Graves, uh, who bought a bulldog from a blacksmith in New Haven. In, in roughly what time This period? was in 1889. Okay. And um, he loved this bulldog. It was said that he bought it at, the, at a, a very dirty dog at a blacksmith shop that just appealed to him. In New Haven. In New Haven. And took the dog home, gave it a bath. And when he saw that it had a beautiful, actually white coat, it wasn't gray, and with brown spots, he said, well, you're a regular handsome Dan. <laughs> and so that's how handsome Dan got his name. And he began bringing him to the football games and gradually taught him to bark at all the opposing teams, and most ferociously, of course, at Harvard. Now, is Handsome Dan the official mascot of the university? Yes, so handsome, this original Handsome Dan uh, continued on after Andy left Yale. He had a younger brother, and he left the dog with him. But in, uh, in, 19, in 1896, Andy was settled in Britain permanently, and he took the dog away. The dog died there in 97 and was mourned. 1897. 1897 and was mourned throughout the world. And obituaries attested that he had climbed the Alps, that he had done all these wonderful feats. So he Some became, of which may or may not have been true. That's right. He okay. became quite a character. So the mascot as, as a symbol and as a picture remained. There were posters. There were bulldog names written on the football shirts. But there was not another live bulldog until 1933. Mm-hmm. And that was Handsome Dan the second. So since then, they've all been Handsome Dans, and we're up to number 17. I was going to ask, is I, I heard that there was one female Handsome There was one female. Daniela, or I don't know what it was called. I think she still was called a Handsome Dan, but every bulldog also has a family name, a name that they're called by their keeper or people who know them personally. Like the current one is Sherman, mm-hmm. after Roger Sherman. And the female dog was Bingo after the famous bingo song, Bingo, Bingo, Eli Yale. Um, I'm going to take uh, another question. Uh, We've got a question from Emmanuel Cordy uh, via Facebook. And um, he uh, is interested to know if there are uh, certain women in Yale history 
who uh, have stood out uh, so much that they might be uh, apt namesakes for, say, a new residential college at the, uh, at the university? Yes. Well, there are many names have been suggested, and <clears throat> the first woman who actually got a degree from Yale was in 1868 from the law school. They never expected a woman to apply, so they did not have rules that said woman, mm -hmm. women couldn't apply. She applied under her initials, Alice Rufi Jordan, and she was very quickly rushed through. In two years, she got her degree. So she's been one that has been suggested as a possible she name. She applied under her initials because? Because she knew that she would not be admitted, even though the rules said uh, didn't specify that you had to be a man. But no uh, woman had uh, attended Yale at that time. In 1869, the art school was opened as a co-ed school, so there, were, there began to be many women who went to Yale, and some did become distinguished artists. But today, the two names that are mentioned uh, the most, in fact, I would say the outstanding name, is uh, Grace Hopper, who received a PhD in mathematics in uh, 1932. She was the first woman admiral in the Navy and also at the forefront in the development of the computer. She developed one of the early classic computer languages, COBOL. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if there is a college named after a woman, it would be after Grace Hopper. By American standards, of course, Yale, as we've discussed, is a very old place. Uh, and it seems especially old downtown, uh, you know, in the center of the, uh, the, old, the old campus uh, in downtown New Haven. But it's actually, most of that is much newer than it looks. Can you tell us a little bit about when Yale adopted the neo-Gothic or collegiate Gothic uh, look and how that all came about? It really became just the styles of the period, and Yale was one of the first to adopt this modern Gothic style. You'll see it at Princeton. You'll also see it at Northwestern, principally. But uh, it, it was probably the architect, James Gamble Rogers, in connection with one of the great donors, the Harkness family, mm -hmm. Edward S. Harkness. Once Harkness Tower was built, which is really probably the one great icon symbol of, of Yale, the freestanding tower. That's on mm -hmm. High Street behind the old campus. It is, and it is, um, it is um, 100 and, um, it is 217 feet tall, which is th the age that Yale was when the tower went up. Mm -hmm. And um, that really set the tone then for the future residential colleges. So was that the first of the collegiate Gothic style buildings? Yes, it was. Uh -huh. And um, the residential colleges that followed, all of those that faced that area of the tower were built in that similar style. They, they opened in 1933. Got it. But if you get to the periphery of the colleges, then you will see that Georgian or federal mm -hmm. style that's in four of the colleges. And, and so the, the Georgian and Federalist style, does that predate the Collegiate Gothic? It, it really it, it existed in the old brick row, these buildings that were built in the earlier 19th century. Mm -hmm. That style went out of fashion. It was considered too simple or just, oh, you might say like a cement block building would, would have been today. Mm -hmm. And so they began to build what they called Victorian Gothic. Those uh, buildings, Farnham Hall, Battelle Chapel, mm -hmm. that you see mm -hmm. constituting the old campus. Then they kind of moved into a classic period where you see the university dining hall, Woolsey Hall, that have a, a kind of Greek temple look. So there, a lot of styles have been used, but I think people don't have realized that the modern Gothic 
in many cases is only about 30 or to 40 years older than the very modernistic mm -hmm. buildings that went like up, Beinecke like the Beinecke Library, mm -hmm. Gibbs Laboratory, and the Philip Johnson buildings and so on. They, they all are pretty much of an era of that first, um, first uh, middle and, and third of the century. A strong link uh, between Yale and the city of New Haven, the, 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 the greater community uh, of, of South Central Connecticut, and, and, and even uh, through sports, the uh, co Collegiate America of a, uh, of a certain era is the Yale Bowl. And I believe the bowl is turning 100 next year. Yeah, that's right, in 14, uh, yeah. the fall of 14. Um, do you have any thoughts on the significance of the bowl, not just for Yale, but sort of as a symbol of something else? Well, I think its, it's symbolism has evolved to a certain extent. I mean, football was the sport that put Yale on the map. There were other sports that were important. Rowing was the first sport. And rowing in America actually began in the New Haven Harbor as early as 1843. But it was Walter Camp, who was born right here on Chapel Street, who developed the modern rules of football out of the rough-and-tumble game of English rugby. And uh, football all started, as I say, in New Haven. The, we have a wonderful letter from Walter Camp to um, Notre Dame. Notre Dame says, we'd like to start a good football team here in 1892. Please send us your best rules. Mm. So thousands and thousands of people came, first by train and then by automobile. So they knew that they needed a bigger stadium. And when the Yale Bowl opened, it was the largest amphitheater that had been built since the Roman Colosseum. Mm. It held upwards of about 70,000 people. It sometimes could hold even more when extra bleachers were, were put up in front. But each time it has been renovated, it, hold, it holds fewer people as people have grown larger through, through the ages. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're sort of we're starting to run out of time, uh, but I want to get to a few more questions. So uh, let me get your thoughts um, on this one from, uh, from Robin, who um, asks, and this is very much a, a New Haven question, um, about the oyster trade uh, and how significant that was uh, in the development uh, of New Haven or how significant it was as part of the economy. Mm -hmm. And specifically, um, uh, sort of what territory did the oyster trade cover uh, at, its, at its peak? And if you can squeeze all this into just a, a minute or so, uh, what, what the architectural antecedents might be for some of the oystermen's cottages that are still around in Fairhaven? Well, of course, I think a lot of them um, seem to have a kind of double-decker or higher quality mm -hmm. because the boats could come right up on the banks of the river there, and most of the time the oysters could be shucked right in, uh, you know, right in the lower level of these houses, usually by the women of the house. Mm -hmm. um, the oystering industry has definitely had its ups and downs. I mean, oysters were very plentiful, as even were lobsters and all shellfish. And they were really food for the common folk. If you couldn't mm. eat anything else, you'd go out and dig yourself some they were clams so or, or oysters. Mm -hmm. It was free food for the most part. Mm -hmm. But then later in the 19th century, it suddenly became a desirable luxury food in New York. And the New York beds of, that supplied most of these oysters actually got used up. And so this left more and more opportunity in the later 19th century for other places. And New Haven, 
on the Long Island Sound. I mean, today the famous one is the Blue Point Oyster, mm -hmm. which is also, which is from Long Island. The New Haven side with um, the pollution and the industry, because New Haven was also a port city mm -hmm. and still is, uh, tended to um, make people scared with health hazards over time. And the industry changed from actually harvesting full, fully grown oysters to becoming seed beds and that has kind of struggled along over the years, too. It's been hoped they were tra training, I believe, uh, prisoners at one time, uh, thinking that when they came out, this would be a good way to earn a living. And it still has some hopes, but mostly we have it in the sense of history with those wonderful mm -hmm. houses in Fairhaven. Well, the, this next question uh, from a gentleman called Lucas Barton uh, pertains also to food. He notes that in your 1997 introduction to Stover at Yale, uh, you mentioned several private eating clubs um, uh, in operation at the turn of, I guess, the 20th century. Um, where were these located? Do any of the buildings still exist, he'd like to know? And uh, do you have much in the way of archival document uh, photographs of, of them? Well, most of the so-called eating clubs were almost really like boarding houses because, first of all, there weren't enough... Um, rooms to house everybody Again, in the dorms. Again, this is pre-residential, the massive right. residential college. So only about half the students were usually able to fit into the dorms at any one period of time until they built the residential colleges. They're just, they couldn't keep up with the growing size of the college. And even if you lived in a college, you didn't want to eat in Yale Commons when there was a, a dining hall. So they would hire a cook or a manager who would provide food, and that was a way for poorer boys actually to go through Yale. Hmm. They would manage a food club, and it would be like, go, you know, you'd go eat in, in and you'd eat family style for, for your meals. And uh, one of the most famous, in a way, I mean, that evolved into that was Maury's, which was originally a bar, actually, and not some lady's home where the cooking was done. Mm -hmm. But that was uh, Mrs. Moriarty, who did run it kind of like a an eating club, you would say. She was famous for her Welsh mm -hmm. rabbits and her soups, and and it was called Maury's Quiet House because she did not want any loud uh, rambunctiousness going on. And so in 1909, that became probably the most famous eating club. So is it Maury's? Yes. So mm -hmm. is, is Maury's the, the sort of sole survivor of those, as it were? I would say so. Now, there are senior societies that we don't always know a lot about because some people call them secret societies. And many of them do serve food, at least on some nights, usually two nights a week. And some of them serve lunches and breakfast as well. We're going to take one more question. This is from uh, Aaron, who, who, who notes that the, uh, the School of Forestry uh, and Environmental Studies has oak leaves uh, and acorns on its school shield and asks about the significance of that. Well, the shields, the heraldic shields, are really uh, just a kind of modern almost satire, you might say, on English heraldry. They were invented from the 1930s through the 1960s, mainly by a professor of art history no, uh, known as Tubby Sizer, Theodore Sizer. And, and like the name Trumbull has three bulls, tri-bull. And so some of them have a basis in real heraldry. Mm -hmm. Others are just figurative. And so it was using the, the woodland right. imagery to make that. That. Of course. Mm -hmm. well, and sorry, I was just saying, and some of them have been changed by design of some of the masters or deans that are associated with these schools and areas mm -hmm. who, who have wanted to make some improvements on them. Judy Schiff, thank you so much for uh, sharing your 
incomparable knowledge of Yale's history with us today. I mean, I'm sure you could go on for hours on any one of these subjects, and some of us would love to hear that. Uh, so I hope perhaps you'll join us again in the future. Well, thank you. New Haven and Yale both have great histories. And thanks to all of you for tuning in for this episode of At Yale Live with Judy Schiff. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.